Welcome to the Chatter in the Box podcast, where your hosts, Liam Skiffington and Matt Indominico, discuss all things baseball. From breaking news to the latest free agent signings, they'll dive into today's game with some of the top minds from around the league. You can catch the latest episode of the Chatter in the Box podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or Amazon Music, or visit our website at www.chatterinthebox.com. All right, welcome back to episode 15 of Chatter in the Box. This week, we have probably our most prominent guest, certainly our most prominent guest to date, Mr. Dennis Gilbert. Dennis, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I appreciate you stepping in the box today and taking some time to chat about your illustrious career. Um, I guess, Dennis, to start off, like, just, I guess, just tell our audience, like, how you got into baseball, and then we'll just go from there. Well, I started out as a player, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a three-tool player. How's that sound? <laughs> what were your three tools? I could hit, I could really run, and I could talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's what got me where I am today. Mm-hmm. Okay. What was your? What do you remember, Dennis, about being like a young, a younger boy, and what drew you to the game of baseball as opposed to something like football, basketball, anything else? Well, probably my size, as far as football or basketball. Uh, I love both both of the other sports, but uh, I could hit a little bit, and like I said, I could run and I could play the outfield. Were you hitting for any power back in the day? No, I never had much power. Just legging out infield singles? Yeah, I had a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> it was good enough, um, to, good enough yeah. to play a little pro ball. There we go. How many years did you spend in the minors, Dennis? Uh, too many. <laughs> so yeah, I finished my minor league career in the Mexican League. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. <laughs> So during your minor league career, Dennis, um, I'm sure you saw, I'm sure a lot of your friends at the time made it to the majors. And I know based on our previous conversations that you saw a lot of them, once they made it to the majors, once they retired, go broke. And then is that what, what kind of was the catalyst for you to become an agent? It is. It is. And then, Liam, thank you for identifying that. Uh, it, it, it broke my heart to see how hard some of these kids worked. And none of them, including myself at that time, had any you know, financial background. And the reason that some of these people were hiring financial advisors or stockbrokers or whoever they would hire uh, is based on the fact that their friends hired and for no other reason. Or the guys were cool or the guys would... Uh, you know, do whatever they wanted them to do. And then so from there, Dennis, you decided just to become an agent or did you have another path in life and then you kind of fell into being an agent? How did that work out? Well, as I had made mention in our previous conversation, uh, when I got out of baseball, uh, I coached at a junior college. And one day the, the father of our first baseman pulled up in a Cadillac and I said, what do you do? And he told me he sold insurance. So in 1972, I started selling life insurance. And at that point in time, I also started studying, uh, taking an accounting course from Columbia School of Accounting to get an accounting degree. And that put me at a whole different level selling insurance. And who do you sell insurance to are the people you know. And the people I knew were baseball players and people in the sport. That's how I grew my practice. So you're growing your insurance practice. You're continuing to uh, 
build on the relationships you already had throughout the game and obviously make new ones. When was the real turning point where you fully transitioned to becoming one of the most prominent agents the game has ever seen? Um, the actual moment could have been when uh, George Brett called me and told me he was gonna didn't want to work with his brother anymore because the owner of the Kansas City Royals didn't like him. And heck, I thought his brother was one of the smartest guys I ever met. But you know, I was. But he, I'll put it this way: he was more of a warrior, and I'm more of a salesman, and that was more conducive to, let's say, this negotiation or to get negotiations going again. So, are you telling me, Dennis, that George Brett fired his brother to hire you? No, I can't tell you that. His brother actually was person that invests his money and took good care of him and made him everything he is today, or what he is financially. So. You start representing these players, you start negotiating on their behalf. At some point along the line, there's a conversation between you, and I'm not sure if it was you and Rick Thurman or you and a couple other people. You guys had a conversation about starting what is now Beverly Hills Sports Council. What was that conversation like, and who was kind of the driver behind building that agency? Well, uh, Rick was a superstar pitcher over at Pepperdine University, and what I was doing is I was help guiding him, and I was his agent. And I went to spring training to visit him. And next thing you know, that he had all these teammates of his and all the people in the Dodger organization. He referred him to, me. and all the players looked up to him. And uh, he was somebody that had you know, that something very special that made players respect him and like him. And uh, I thought he'd be a perfect fit. And then we soon, as soon as he got out of his playing career, he became a partner. And then it was just you and him dri driving uh, Beverly Hills Sports Council from that point forward? We had another fellow in the beginning who uh, didn't stay with us much longer. Was the reason for starting it the same reason that you told me earlier in this conversation that you just saw how many of these guys were unprepared for life after the game? No, I, I had a, a lot of affection for baseball and baseball players and, and wanted to make sure that didn't keep happening. But I love being involved in the sport. And it also enhanced my insurance practice. Oh, Bobby Benizio, if you remember that. Okay, sorry about that. A little, a little Wi-Fi mishap. Um, so you were saying that you had an affinity for baseball players, and then you cut out. Well, I grew up playing baseball, and I, and I got to know the game really, really well. I was a student of the game and became friends with an awful lot of players during my career. And then just wanted to keep on going from there. I loved it. Um, yep, do anything you can to stay in the game, right? That's it. So how did you, Dennis, you were... You were an insurance mogul, essentially, and a, a titan in the agency business. How did you manage both of those at the same time? Uh, I did it well enough to, to do it both 20 years. Yeah. Then I sold my part of the sports agency to stay in the insurance business. I kind of ran out of gas. Uh, being an agent's probably a bit more fast-paced than the insurance game, I would think, right? Well, you're always on a plane. It's seven days a week. It's 24 hours a day. You're always on call. It gets a little tough. And, and you know, a, a sports agent, you're more than just negotiating contracts. You become, you know, a marriage counselor, a psychiatrist. 
and become the guy that helps them make purchases from cars to real estate. I mean, you're a very important person in that per- in a player's life. You're essentially their go-to person, right? I was. How would you help, Dennis, you've represented Hall of Famers, um, Titans of the 90s, 80s, how in many controversial, like Barry Bonds, Jose Canseco, during their careers, how would you manage like the controversy that would surround them? Whether it was the conversations you would have with them, the conversations you would have to have with teams to kind of mend a relationship. What was that like for you? It was chaotic. And I dealt with it for as long as I could until I couldn't do it anymore. It was a 24-7 job. And I ended up, uh, you know leaving that business. Mm-hmm. And you're still in insurance today. How's that going for you? Um, how, do, how are you liking it still? I'm proud to say that we're we're doing our agency last year. Probably did more life insurance than any other agency in the country. In, wow. In life insurance premium. Congratulations. And, That's an, an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, it, it's, you, you talk about being, you know, I've been very, very lucky. We led a few companies last year, our agency. We'll probably do it again this year. Uh, or, you know, we have probably more high net worth people as clients, you know, getting involved in their estate planning, creative life insurance products than anybody else. Dennis, so I don't think that much of our audience fully understands life insurance. How important is it to have life insurance? And at what age would you advise people to start looking into getting it? Well, it depends if you're young. I mean, first of all, you buy insurance because you love someone, either yourself to building up cash or somebody else, meaning your family. Mm-hmm. What I mean by loving yourself, take a look at the Bobby Bonilla deal. Okay, that's an insurance product. Okay, and he's getting 25 years of income. And, you know, if somebody's young and they don't have a, a product like that and, and they have a decent net worth, they should consider getting it. If they have a good net worth, I could show them how to finance it. And if you're older and you're building up an estate and you spend 20, 30 years, 40 years to create the estate, the last thing in the world you want to have happen is have the government take 40% of it. And the most inexpensive way to pay those estate taxes are is having life insurance. And by doing it the way we do it, it's cheaper than any other place. I'll make that representation to you. Got it. So you mentioned the Bobby Bonilla deal, Dennis. I'm not sure that our entire audience fully understands what happened with that deal. So the Mets pretty much approached him and wanted to buy out the remainder of his contract, right? And at no. the time it was, no? no. Okay. They didn't approach him at all. Bobby and I always talked about deferring some of that contract because he didn't need $30 million over a five-year period. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we deferred it into an insurance product and... And when he retired, started receiving, as you know, almost $1.2 million a year for 25 years. Every year on July 1st, right? That's correct. Until through 2035? That's about right. What do you guys do, Dennis, on July 1st every year? Do you and Bobby still keep in touch? Does he give you a phone call every year? Do you raise a glass of wine? Like, what, What's that day like for you now? Well, we don't wait till July 1st. We stay in close touch all the way through. Bobby and I are still friends. And same with a lot of the other players that I represented. Mm-hmm. I'm just... Um, so- did during the time of that deal, Bobby and yourself obviously talked about, like you said, how he wasn't really necessary for him to have $30 million over the course of five years. 
How did you guys come up with the eight percent interest rate number over that time? It was it was negotiated with the Mets. Okay, interesting. Was this Dennis for you the first kind of deferred deal that you ever negotiated for a client? I don't remember if it was the first or not, but I've done a lot, awful lot of them. Not a, that was the biggest one at the time. Remember, Bobby right. was the highest paid player in baseball in 1992. Uh, I'm curious. In so in to, like you said, he gets this payment every single year, July 1st. During the 2020 season, because Bobby's obviously not an active player, did he get that full amount or was it kind of, um, what is it, prorated is the word I'm looking for? No, he got the full amount. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so how would you, Dennis, evaluate the long-term implications of this contract? And do you think that more and more players in today's game should be looking into deferred money? I think they should be looking into it. I think, you know... I'd be happy to educate anybody in the game, explain to them how it works. I tell them that they shouldn't listen to the, you know, some of the people that they listen to right now because look where, you know, you're seeing over 70% of the players uh, having to work menial jobs after five years out of the game. <laughs> it's crazy going back to work. Uh, because they don't have these these types of plans, and everybody. So the first thing I would recommend to all players, if they have a financial advisor, or if they're thinking of a financial advisor, is ask them to speak to any of their retired clients, like a Bobby Bonilla, and ask them what kind of long term performance that these these fellows do for you. And How- I will represent to you that ninety percent of these financial advisors will not want them to, or try mm-hmm. to make an excuse. So you always want to speak to retired players and see where they're at. Mm-hmm. How how did that contract for you, Dennis, impact the rest of your business? Like after you did that, after everyone saw what you you guys were obviously doing a bunch of great things for a bunch of great players at the time, but that one specifically kind of sh- almost shocked the industry a little bit. Did you almost have like an influx of players approaching you guys afterwards or not so much? Not so much because he was receiving the money. Bobby played up until like 2002 and I retired in 2000 from sports business. Mm-hmm. So it didn't get the publicity until after he started receiving the money. Got it. So what was the industry perspective of that contract at the time? Did people kind of think it was crazy because he well, wasn't players, getting money now? The Players Association challenged it. Other people always challenged why are you deferring? You could do so much better with your money now. And I called baloney. Wait, I didn't say baloney. And I've been in business for a lot of years now. And my motto is why leave it to chance when you could leave it to yourself mm-hmm. or take dollars out of the bank of today and put it in the bank of tomorrow. Take dollars out of the bank of today and put it in the bank of tomorrow. I think that's, that's advice I certainly need to follow, Dennis. Jeez. Maybe we can talk off camera. okay dennis so how let me ask you this you're what you started this agency when you were what 25 something like that something like that so your insurance agency or the sports agency the sports agency uh i think i was like 29 or something that okay so you're maybe 20 or my early 30s Okay, 29, 30-year-old guy running around Beverly Hills. What was your prominent agent? What was your personal life like during that time? Like, what were you doing? 
it had to it had to have been crazy. I was working very very hard. Yeah, working very hard, day and night. No, all work, no play. All work and all play. I never slept. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Dennis, what would happen? Um, so in the agency business, like obviously attracting clients, attracting earners is one of the top things you need to do to be a successful agent. What would you guys do when you were first starting out? Because I'm assuming at some point, once you guys made it to pro- the level of prominence you did, that guys would kind of probably just approach you guys. How would you guys in that time approach clients and say, come with us, like we're, we're the best? We didn't really run around approaching clients. Our clients actually say, yeah, you should be with Gilbert or Thurman or whoever. Say that, that we, you know, we really took care of our clients. What would you say are some of the most crucial factors in getting a player to either sign or decline an offer from a team? Uh, interestingly enough, you, you involve them in all the negotiations. Look, I've had players who turned down a lot more money to stay in a place that they liked. And, uh, you know, the team treated him well. And off the top of my head, I can think of John Franco had a, when he was a free agent, was offered a lot more money from Baltimore and uh, had to think about it. And he wanted to stay where, you know, where his kids were growing up. And it was important to him. So it was always up to the player. And it wasn't about the money. I didn't need the money. I was making enough money in the insurance business to where I didn't need to get the last dollar from, from a team. Like I said, I was a salesman more than I was a warrior. And I wasn't a grinder. But I knew the business and I knew the the appropriate amount of money that the player should be getting. Did teams almost fear you, Dennis, during free agency? Like, did they fear almost approaching you guys because of, like, your prominence? No, nobody ever feared us because we were logical and everything we did, we were prepared and showed why whatever number we were looking for was appropriate. I didn't want to hurt credibility of our company. So that's the way we went about our business. Who was the biggest influence on your career as an agent? Or was it mostly kind of just you taking your lumps on your own and learning, teaching yourself the business? That's a great question. I think it was probably the help that I got from former players. And I don't think it was one person. I think it was a lot of them, you know, being happy, you know, with what I did, staying friends all through the years. Um, like I said, to this day, I still speak to a lot of the, a lot of my former clients. I don't, as far as being influential in that, I think it was me being scared. I didn't want to fail. Fear of failure is driving you to becoming one of the best agents of all time. Well, I was scared because when I was an agent or when I was a player, I always thought I'd be playing in the big leagues and it didn't work out. And so all I had to, all I knew is that I had to go out and I had to work for everything I had. And the harder I worked, the luckier I got. How were you able, Dennis, during free agencies, signing contracts with new teams, how were you able to navigate the balance between player demands and some teams' financial constraints or roster constraints? I was lucky enough to be surrounded by good people that would help me, like Rick. Network well. Um, and can you remember, Dennis, if there's any kind of creative stipulations you put into any contract you've negotiated over the years that uh, not near that didn't get almost as, didn't get as much publicity as Bobby Bonilla's that not a lot of people probably know about? 
I don't want to say talk about it publicly, but we got some a lot of side deals. <laughs> okay, interesting. What would you say you miss most about that business? Oh, the interaction with some some of the players was a lot of fun. What would you say you don't miss the most or miss the least? Being involved in some of the personal problems that some of the players had between themselves and their spouses. Uh, that was the toughest part of my business. And between players and their parents, some of the parents, uh, you know, were always, you know, asking for money or asking for things or asking for stuff. We had in-laws asking for tickets all the time or asking for special favors. I mean, it was everybody who would call and ask for something. I don't miss that part at all. And as their agent, you almost you almost have a duty to say, yes, I'm I'm there. I'm going to help you, right? I was there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had a mother-in-law call me and yell at me when her son-in-law got sent down to AAA, <laughs> even though the guy was hitting 200. Yelled at me. How can I let that happen? I mean, it was, it was your fault. And, I, clearly. and you know what? I, had, I took it. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't like it, but I took it. I tried to explain it, and she didn't get it. And it's, and well, if you were if you were litigious about it, I mean, you would risk ruining the relationship with the player, right? That's correct. Yeah. The other thing was, that bothered me the most was some players uh, were very tough on collecting you know, collecting payments, you know, they would send them a bill every month and they may or may not pay it regularly or we were the last guy to get paid. That was pretty tough too, running a business. How would you guys even handle Would you just continue to send invoices and then eventually? I'm going to call and talk to the yeah. player. And they would, I'm sure they would just kind of give you the runaround, right? Sometimes. Checks in the mail. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you weren't holding your breath too much, Dennis. I know, <laughs> but that was a part of that was a tough part of the business too. But generally, we we did real well with it. But there were times when we didn't get paid at all. Wow. We part we parted with the players. What are some of the differences in style that you've seen? So, like, take your style as an agent, a superstar agent. What are some of the differences in the style between you and an agent like Scott Boris? We're just different. We're just different people. He's got a successful practice, works very hard, but we have we're different people, different personalities. He's a little younger than me. He had a lot more employees than I had. Um, we both were minor league players who didn't make it. I'm absolutely a way nicer guy. You are? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good to know. That's very good to know. So, Dennis, you've been you've been involved in this game, man, for fifty plus years, if if not more. I know you've done a ton of interviews. I know you've probably talked to a million journalists in your day. But what's one story you've been dying to tell that you just haven't yet? Oh, off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but I I know many, and some of them I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Well, you were uh, something uh, in the back of my mind earlier when you said you were a minor league baseball player. What were you getting paid back then as a minor league baseball player? Mm. Remember, meal money was $5 a day on the road. Okay. And that was enough for a slice of pizza and a Coke. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and then, I, so you got per diem, you didn't get paid much else from the team? No, you got a salary. I think it was. First year was five hundred a month, and then it went to six fifty. And most I made in minor leagues was a thousand a month. Mm -hmm. Thousand a month. Yeah. Did you feel back then? Did you feel like you were rolling in the dough? 
No, but I was able to live on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, when I started selling insurance, I told people I had to sell furniture to supplement my income, mm-hmm. my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you got it all back, right? I did. It was worth it. It was worth it. So during your time in the miners, Dennis, Ted Williams was actually a hitting coach of yours, right? He was, or not just mine. He was a Red Sox minor league hitting coach. What can you? I spent a lot of time with him. What can you share with us about the the knowledge he has of hitting and what he kind of bestowed upon you? Well, the one thing I learned about from Ted is that everybody's different. In other words, some people would crouch lower, some people would stand up straighter, some people would hold the bat back further, some people would keep the bat closer, whatever was comfortable for them. So he wanted everybody to be comfortable. But the key to his hitting style was zoning the ball. He had incredible eyesight. And he would tell you to look for a spot when you came up to the plate. Or the first thing he'd tell you is, watch the pitcher warm up. Now, at that time, you didn't have video. I'm talking about the 60s. Or maybe he had some video, I don't know. But he said, watch the pitcher warming up. Watch, see if you could pick up anything from Then he would say that, uh, pick a spot. If the ball wasn't in that spot, spin on it until you had two strikes. Then you adjust and make contact. But as soon as the ball went to your spot, he said, he used to say pitchers were the dumbest animals on the planet. That was his saying. He, he actually called me. And he would say that they would always make a mistake just about every time at, at the plate. So wait for the mistake and then jump on it and be ready for it. So you got to learn from him daily for the matter of a couple of years in the minors, huh? That's correct. Wow. That's, I'm, I'm sure you got plenty of short stories to share about that. Well, Dennis, let me ask you one last thing. If you were in my seat right now, what would you ask yourself? Why am I doing this? <laughs> no, look, what's the next step for you? What do you want to do? I want what's, to, what's, your, what's your end game? I want to make this full time. Uh-huh. I want to interview um, high caliber individuals like you full time and, and help grow the game of baseball. And what are you doing to get there? Interviewing high caliber individuals like you and helping growing the game of baseball. Uh, we're going this summer. We have planned us. You can call it a mini tour, if you will, um, around the East Coast, um, going to different minor league parks and interviewing different players, shooting content with them. And then hopefully over the course of this summer, we'll be able to coordinate more cities next year and then build from there. Mm-hmm. So you see the PG that I'm wearing? I am. Perfect game. Yep. That's correct. I think that's a good place to start. Yes, thank you. I was actually talking to, I, you know, Josh Kuznick, obviously. He um, was texting me today about the uh, Florida Nationals next month and about a couple of the guys that are going down there. So hopefully uh, we'll be making our way to Florida for a perfect game, um, adding that to the list this summer, too. Get yourself a credential if you can, if, if, you know, ball major league ballparks and even minor league ballparks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our goal before the end of the summer is uh, major league credential. Um, hopefully we can make that happen. We're working with a few teams right now. So the first piece of advice I'll give you is you should try to get a minor league one so you can interview guys at the minor league all-star games mm-hmm. and get those guys on video while they're minor league all-stars. You have a good chance of those guys making it to the big leagues. Got it. Yep. Yeah, so we, we're lucky enough to have credentials with all the cities that we're going to do this summer. Um, and hopefully we're just going to be building on that list for the next year or two to come. Did you go? 
or you go to the all-star games? I'm not going to the all-star games yet. Um, this year we've been to Nashville, Hartford, Brooklyn, Portland. We're going to Reading, Pennsylvania next month. And then hopefully adding at least two more before the end of the year. Well, you you know, they're all condensed with, at these all-star games. Mm-hmm. And it's a shortcut. It's probably a lot more effective and for time and for effort. I, I could not agree more. We're definitely going to be looking into that. I can't, I can't take advice from you and not do anything with it, right? That's the point I'm trying to make, Liam. <laughs> well, Dennis, we really appreciate you taking the time today to come on and speak with us about your career. Um, also, well, oh, wait, wait a second. Also, congratulations to you and your wife on 45 years of marriage. Before I let you go, what is the key to a healthy, happy, long relationship like that? When you get married, don't let them throw minute rice. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Dennis Gilbert, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time, and we're looking forward to talking to you again at some point down the, down the road. There you go. Take care, Liam.